several years ago, my wife and I went to Tennessee. We were going to the Smoky Mountains to enjoy a couple of days together there. And as you're going to the Smokies, you stop in Nashville for a night. So we did that. We enjoyed the wonderful people there. Saw a lot of bachelorette and bachelor parties going on. And it was a Wednesday night, but it, you would have thought it was a Saturday night. How many people were out? Uh, just a wonderful place. And we, uh, we eventually got to the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee there. And we got comfortable in our hotel room. And then we got down to the pool because they had a pool. Put our stuff down. They got an indoor pool. We got to take advantage of the pool. So we go down there, and of course it's packed. It's like, oh, all these people in the pool, we're trying to enjoy vacation. So we try to, you know, have a good attitude about it. And there were several different groups there, but there was uh, one group in particular that caught my eye. And that was this group of women, multiracial, multigenerational, looking like they were having the time of their life. And so since we were in Nashville and everyone was on their bachelorette, bachelor party, thought they were doing the same. So we actually initiated a conversation and just, you know, the way they were doing things, they had these, you know, red drinking cups, they had this music on, they were dancing as if no one else was in the pool, but the pool was packed. And so we started a conversation and I said, you guys must be here on your bachelorette party. And then one of the ladies said, no, we're preschool teachers. I said, does the principal know you're here? And they said, well, we're here for a conference. And they were, we, they were so nice. And we started talking to them some more. And they said, yeah, later we're going to a karaoke bar. And I was like, well, at this point in our conversation, I'm not surprised. So we got to talking to them. They were super friendly. And as I reflected on that moment, I was, I, I was convicted in some sense because I made a, a judgment call on them too soon. I certainly didn't malign their character or think anything inappropriate about them. I just was wrong about why they were there. They were simply preschool teachers enjoying the pool because they were at a conference. Most of us are quick to making judgment calls too soon on people and too soon on cultural events. With all that's been going on in our news lately, it's really easy to assume that we know that we're right or assume that our position is correct all the time. It's very easy to assume that we know, but sometimes we don't know. And that's the truth of what happens here with Jesus. Uh, we're in chapter 7, and we've been going to the Gospel of John, and you can see the hatred or the antagonistic nature of people towards Jesus is starting to intensify. People are starting to dislike him more and more. And we see that the wrong judgment about who Christ is continues. That's what we see in this passage. That's the big idea. The wrong judgment about who Christ is continues today. And we see that with his family, and we see that with the crowds and the religious leaders. We learn right away that Jesus went to a place called Galilee, and not Judea, because Judea is where the Jewish leaders were. They were trying to kill him. They were trying to kill him because, if you could remember just a couple chapters ago, chapter 5, Jesus went to a pool called Bethesda, and there was an invalid man there who had been in that position for 38 years. But it was the Sabbath day, and back then, couldn't do any work on Sabbath, including healing. But Jesus saw a man who needed his help, and he reached out and he fully healed him on the Sabbath day. 
And ever since then, the religious leaders, because they loved the law so much, and anyone who broke it in any way, uh, they, were, they were very hostile towards them. And they were hostile towards Jesus. And immediately in this passage, we learn about the Feast of the Boots that was at hand. Uh, some of your translations will say Jewish Festival of Tabernacles. This was a major celebration. This was in September or October, usually for a week. What people did is they took off work, and for seven days they ate good food, they worshipped God, and they actually hung out in booths or leafy shelters. That's why it's called the Feast of Booths. And they remembered how God was good to their ancestors, the Israelites, in the wilderness when they were wandering for 40 plus years. So they took the time to worship God, to take a break from work. Of the three biggest Jewish celebrations, the, the Passover, the Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles was the biggest one by far. Right? Like some of you know a little bit about the Pentecost. You know about the Passover. Most of us, we kind of overlook this one, but it's actually the most popular one. Countless thousands of people would go and celebrate for a week. If you were ever going to make yourself known or popular or put yourself out there, this was the time to do it. It was a wonderful celebration where people took off to remember God's goodness in their life. I love how in the Bible, rituals and routines is a big deal. We sort of kind of lost the art of routine and ritual in many places. In America, we love success stories. We love to win. We're winners. We have won and dominated in many things for so long. That's a good thing. But, you know, sometimes those, especially entrepreneurs or businessmen or those in the medical field or those who are really trying to make their life count, which is a very good thing to do. Uh, some of you in other professions as well, you can relate to this. Maybe you've been prone to overwork and not take a vacation. So busy all the time. Sometimes, in some seasons, that's just life. You have to do that, especially in the beginning. But it's certainly not sustainable, especially not for your entire career. The lifestyle is not sustainable, and all kinds of mental and emotional health issues derive from it. We see in the Bible often the people of God taking a break. Not just to go on the beach and eat whatever you want and lay out on the sun, which is a fun thing to do. But to remember God's goodness, to worship God, to think about how good he's been to you. It's a common thing that people in the Bible do. We should do the same. We shouldn't feel guilty for taking our vacation, and we shouldn't look down upon those who take a personal day here or there. We need to rest and relax and remember the goodness of God and that help is best in the context of being away from work. That's what's going on, the Feast of the Tabernacles. They got it back then in this huge celebration, but at first, Jesus says, I'm not going. And his brothers are trying to pressure him to going. Verses 3 to 4, they say, So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. So notice here it says Jesus' brothers enters the scene. That might surprise some of you. Jesus was born of a virgin, fully God, 
when he was born in the incarnation. We celebrate that on Christmas, but we really should celebrate that all year round. Mary was a virgin. After that, Mary and Joseph had children the natural biological way. And so Jesus had siblings, all younger siblings. You could say same mom, different dad, half brothers, half sisters are not mentioned here. But in the Gospel of Mark, it says this, Is this not the carpenter? Speaking of Jesus, they're actually insulting him at this point. The son of Mary, and get this, brother James and Joseph and Judas, not Iscariot, not one of his disciples, but a different Judas, common name back then, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? Had siblings, surprises some people, but it's in the Bible on multiple occasions. And here his siblings, his brothers, are trying to give him advice. And they know the Feast of the Tabernacles is going on. If you're you know, a business person, you have a business card, you're trying to make connections, like this is the event you go to. If you're the son of God and you can do miracles and you can get attention and you can get followers, like this was the time to put yourself out there. And uh, Jesus' brothers at this point, their advice stems from ignorance and unbelief. At this point, they were not Christians. A Christian is someone who's a Christ follower. They did not believe in Jesus as the Messiah or the Savior. They did not see him in that role. They kind of had the suspicion that he was different. They may have heard a buzz around him in town. So they're saying, hey, you want to build a platform? You want to blow up? Want to be famous? This is the time to do it. And Jesus rejects their advice, at least at first. He gives reasons why. He says the world, that he's not of this world, but they're of this world. The Bible says world, often it's not talking about the earth and the planets and creation, but it's talking about fallen humanity. It talks about everyone who's not a Christ follower, the way they live, worldly people. That's how the Bible talks about it. And Jesus says, I'm not of the world, you're of the world, so if you go there, they're not going to have a problem with you because you're just like everyone else. But me, I call people out on their sin because that's what I'm supposed to do in part and reveal their need for a Savior. And whenever you do that... People tend not to like it that much. People walking in the darkness like the darkness and they don't want the light to be turned on. They need the light to be turned on. Sometimes they don't. So Jesus says, I'm not going. He says at verse 8, I'm not going up to the feast. Verse 8. I find it interesting because later in the narrative, he goes to the feast. So one could suspect, wait, is this a contradiction? Is the Jesus lie? Did John not properly record this in the Bible? Actually, if you look at the original language, the I am not going up is in present tense. So what Jesus is saying is not, I'm not going up yet. I'm not going up yet. In some original reliable manuscripts, the word yet is in there, actually. So Jesus is saying, I, I'm not going up Yet, not now, not on your timing, not the way you want me to do it, not for the reason you guys want me to do it. But I'm eventually going to go up there on my father's timing. Jesus didn't take everyone's advice. Sometimes you take advice. Sometimes you have to overlook it. Not everyone's correct. And here Jesus is saying, my timing, every step, every word, every deed, everything I do is on a structured timetable. By God the Father. I'm not just doing things willy-nilly. and just you know, I'm not this pushover kind of guy that just gives in to what everyone wants. I, I, I want to serve. I want to love. I want to help people. But 
I'm, I'm, I've got a short time here, and I'm doing everything on the Father's will. I'm going to go up, but not yet. His brothers, they had no idea who he was. The ESV study Bible footnote says, They lived and ate and slept in the same rooms as the eternal Son of God and did not know it. They wrongly judged who Jesus was at this point. I've been getting into morning routines lately. For some reason, entrepreneurs, writers, business people. What, like, what do the successful people do between 4 a.m.? I'm sleeping at 4 a.m., but like 5 a.m., 6 a.m., 7 a.m., 8 a.m. Like, how, how is a good way to start the day? Exercise, Bible reading, prayer, writing, meditating. Like, what, what, do, what do people who I look up to do? Really find that if I could just start the day well... The day just kind of goes better. But if I, you know, start the day poorly, it kind of drags on. So mo the momentum, there's something there that goes on. So I'm trying to learn about morning routines and stumbled upon this website. Shiny, beautiful website. They must have paid thousands for it because it looked staggering. As one who knows a little bit about code and website design and all that, I was just blown away by this website. And these guys have a book. And if you think the, if you think the website looks great, the book just grabs your attention. Like this orange, beautiful coloring and the font and everything. It just, everything just says, buy me on the book, right? On the, you're on the website. So I go to Amazon. I got Amazon Prime. So if I click a couple buttons, it's going to be at my house in two days. That's just, we're living in the 21st century. I know technology can be bad, but if you don't like that, there's something, you know, you, it's a wonderful blessing to be able to do that. So I go to Amazon and we live in a review day, Yelp, Google reviews, Amazon reviews, and so on. And so I read one of the reviews, and one of the reviews is a one-star review. Here's what this guy says about the book. This is a great example of not judging a book by its cover. Creative and, in, creative and inviting on the outside, shallow and rambling on the inside. There are zero insights. I like this guy. Once you've read a few times in a row that people basically get out of bed between 5.30 and 6, that they value their sleep, and they do all the trendy things that people expect, you've exhausted the substance. Quote, waste of money, end quote. I looked at the other reviews. They were similar. They were similar. I felt, I mean, they might be wrong, but in this kind of situation, I was looking at the book, and I had high expectations, and so far, the reading other people uh, is probably a letdown. Maybe it's not. They could be wrong. I might buy it. But based on the external appearances, I thought it was a staggering book. On the inside, other people are saying not so much. It's so easy to judge by appearances on the outside when really the inside matters more. Who you are on the inside, being a spiritual deep person who has a tight walk with the triune God, is more important than how people perceive you on the outside. And at this point in Jesus' life, his family did not believe in him, at least his siblings did not. And some of you here today, right now, you are a Christ follower. And some people in your family don't believe in Jesus. It crushes you. You might have children and you raised them in the discipline and destruction of the Lord. You sent them to the good schools, you told them about Jesus, and at 18, they, they went away to a college, 19, and they just left the church, and it just, it's crushing to go through that. 
Or maybe when you get together for the holidays and you're around people, your family, your cousins, and so on and so forth, they know you're a Christian. They know you have a certain view on marriage and sexuality. They know that you believe the Bible is true. They know that you believe that there's only one way to heaven. And you feel maligned for that. You feel suffocated. They might ask, why are you a Christian? How can you believe in a God that allows so much suffering and killing in the Old Testament? How can you believe a God that you can't see? Don't you look at the culture? Don't you see how things are going downhill? Get with the program. It can be super hard to be one of the people in your family who loves Jesus, and yet someone whom you love, you know that apart from Christ, they're going to spend an eternity apart from him forever. So hard to carry that cross. I think we need to talk about that some more because I know some of you feel that way. And I can relate to what you're going through to some degree. What we can see in this passage is that Jesus can sympathize with that weakness. Jesus can sympathize with you. That he knows what it was like to be misunderstood. To have people second guess him. To drill him. To think he was literally insane. People saying in this passage, you have a demon. So if you're one of those people and you're, you're a Christ follower, but you know there's people in your family that are not, let me just encourage you to draw, draw near to the throne of grace. To cast your anxieties and your sorrows on God. Jesus is not in heaven looking down on your prayer thinking, oh, I can't relate to that. I have no idea what that's like, but I'll, I'll try to see what I can do. No, no, he's the one who came down. He came down with fully God, fully man. He suffered. He knows exactly what it's like. So let me just encourage you to draw near to the one who can sympathize with you. But let me also encourage you to pray for them and not give up. Now, you're not God, you can't save anyone, so let me relieve you from the burden of feeling like you need to be the second Savior. We have one Savior, He is sufficient. Yes, you need to set a good godly example and share the gospel, and whenever you mess up, you can just kind of be honest about it, but only Jesus can save people. But never stop praying for those who don't know the Lord. Why? Because James, I read that passage earlier, he was one of Jesus' brothers, and then he became an apostle. He was martyred for Christ. He eventually came to faith in Christ. Keep praying for family members who don't know God. We see wrong judgment about Jesus from his family members, but we also see it from the crowds and the religious leaders. So we get to the point in the passage where Jesus eventually goes up to the Feast of the Tabernacles. It says, and secretly... Not openly like his brothers wanted on the father's timing, not on their timing, to teach and preach, not to do miracles like some sort of person trying to gather attention. And we see there that Jesus was a talk of the town because as it was read out loud, they says that there was much muttering about him. That word muttering is, is grumbling. Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, do everything without grumbling. <laughs> now people are grumbling about Jesus. First Peter, Peter says, show hospitality without grumbling. It's always used in a negative sense, so people weren't just sort of whispering behind the scenes. They were hostile towards him. He was the talk of the town. People were divided about who Christ was. We have this side. They said he was just a good man. And we had this side that said he was leading people astray, or as the NIV 
rightly puts it, he was deceiving people. That's what they thought of him. Both sides are deficient because you cannot just think Jesus was a good man. That is not good enough. You know, sometimes people say, oh, I think Jesus was a good teacher, but I don't think he was God. Um, have you ever read his teachings? He expects everything from his disciples. Love, your, love me more than your own spouse. Love me more than your own husband and father. Uh, love me more than anyone in your life. Give up, give up everything for me. Carry your cross and follow me. Who, who says that kind of stuff? Not just a good teacher. He's not just a good man. He is a good man, but he's also the God man. So believing that Jesus is a good man, a good teacher, it's not good enough. It's certainly not going to save. One has to believe that he's the Christ, that he's God, that you have to believe in him and trust in him. The other side is even worse. It's even more antagonistic. People are saying he's leading people astray. He's deceiving people. Those are serious accusations because in Old Testament law, it said if you were deceiving people and you were a religious leader, you should be stoned to death. So now you know why there were so many people trying to attack Christ. If you speak up for Jesus, share him with the world, some people might treat you the same way. So halfway through the feast, Jesus gets there and he arrives on the scene and he starts to teach and preach he often did his miracles in secret, but he often does his teaching and preaching in public. And as Jesus was teaching and preaching, people were questioning, how can this sort of 30-something-year-old Palestinian guy without formal rabbinic training be up here teaching and preaching? They wonder about his authority. The word rabbi means teacher back then. Had to go through this long, long, long formal rabbinic training only to stand up in front of people to have their head buried in the notes, quoting long citations and saying the same thing every year, year after year. Jesus gets on the scene, no formal rabbinic training, doesn't look in his notes. Elsewhere in the Gospel of Luke, we see he quotes scripture from memory, Old Testament, showing that he took the time to read it and memorize it. And he has authority and there's fresh teaching and people are wondering, where is he getting his authority from? He's getting it from God. He's getting it from God. Certainly a master of divinity degree is wonderful. Anyone who wants to be a prospective pastor, I would highly encourage it. It's not a prerequisite. Nowhere in scripture. Prerequisite is character, calling, godliness. I have a peer who has several degrees and a master of divinity. I have another peer who's a pastor. Doesn't have a college degree. Pastor over here, fantastic pastor, loves God, loves his people, planting the church, just sold out, wonderful tight walk with Jesus. Guy over here disqualified himself from ministry right when he got into ministry. Several character issues, sending his family through the ringer. Education is unbelievably helpful. I'm a huge advocate for it, will always be. Might get more education myself, not sure. Once again, it's not good enough. One needs to have character and calling and authority from God. And that's what Jesus has. When it comes to evaluating future ministry leaders or community group leaders or children's ministry directors or uh, people who want to serve, you know, we tend to put so much emphasis on the outside. You know, are they, you know, attractive? Can they, uh, you know, hold the attention of the room? Are they charismatic? Are they gifted? All this other stuff. It really doesn't matter that much. It matters to a certain degree. Certainly, someone needs to have some level of gifting. But what's the chief prerequisite to serve is character. 
godliness, a love for God. Some of you feel like you can't get involved or can't serve because you don't know this or that or you're not like so-and-so. And let me just say that that kind of stuff it has its place, but it's real small. What really matters more is your internal desire and your heart to serve. And God can use that and he blessed that. We put so much emphasis on how people are perceived on the outside when God is far more concerned about the inside. You can fool me. I'm not omniscient. I don't know everything. You can fool other people. You can't fool God. And God sees. God knows. You know, what, what, what's more concerning? What everyone thinks about us or what God thinks about us? Now, I wonder how many of us throughout our weeks, you know, we're so you know, going to work, dropping the kids off here or there, going to see the grandkids. You know, we, we, we're so concerned about how we, what we dress and makeup and cologne and all that. And there's certainly we want to be presentable and it's good to enjoy fashion. It's a gift from God and buy clothes and so on and so forth. But if you're so concerned about all that kind of stuff and you neglect prayer and Bible reading, it shows that you too might be one of these people that are more concerned about how people perceive you. What's more important is your inward life, your prayer, your Bible reading, what God thinks. And if you live like that, other people will be blessed and served by you. It's a win-win. Not everyone's going to like you. That's okay. Not everyone like Christ. Sometimes people don't like you, not because there's something wrong with you. It might be more of a reflection on them. But we need to be more concerned about our heart. About what God thinks, about what God sees. And that comes through private time with them and coming to church and faithful church attendance. The more we do that, the more we'll find satisfaction. You know, the less we'll care about what people think. You'll walk into a room and no one will acknowledge you and you won't be, you won't be upset at all. You're so tight with Jesus. You're so secure in God. You, you've devoted yourself to that private time with Him. More concerned about the heart, the inside, than the outside. And the hostility here continues towards Jesus. And people aren't seeing His inside quite yet. They're still judging by the outside. And then Jesus gets a little more blunt with them and tells them why they're rejecting Him. He tells the crowds that they did not want to do God's will which is just a spiritual way of saying they don't want to obey God with their lives. And they say, Jesus said they lack discernment. That if they were truly discerning people, they could tell the counterfeit from the actual thing. And Jesus is the actual thing. But they can't tell that yet. And Jesus says they sought their own glory. They were more concerned about their glory, what people thought of them, than what God the Father thought about them. In verse 19, Jesus starts to bring up a touchy subject with Moses. Moses was their boy. Moses was their homie. They saw themselves as disciples of Moses. They had a, Moses was on the pedestal. You can remember the Pentateuch. Pentateuch comes from the Latin word five, first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Moses wrote that. Moses wrote a lot of rules. These guys love the rules. They love the rules, so they were really tight with Moses. And uh, these are guys who dedicated their lives to studying the Old Testament. Some of them memorizing the whole thing. And Jesus tells them that you have not even kept it. What he's trying to say is that you haven't even obeyed it. Because if they really obeyed it, they would know who Jesus is. But at this point, there was wrong judgment about him. And Jesus starts to detect their motives. And he says, why do you seek to kill me? 
It was a clear violation to murder someone for the wrong reason. And that's what they were doing here. They were trying to kill Jesus. And that would be a violation of the law. And so Jesus is actually humbling Moses and starting to offend them even more. The crowd say, you must have a demon who's trying to kill you. What are you talking about? You're just standing there teaching in the temple. Who in the world is doing this? How much OCD and anxiety do you have? What are you saying? You sound paranoid. And Jesus elaborates. Again, he's going back to their work at Bethesda, chapter 5. He's getting flacked for this, even though we're months and months after it's done. Verse 21, I did one work, and you all marveled at it. Moses, again, he's humbling Moses, gave you circumcision. Parenthetical comment from John. I like this. Not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken... Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. What in the world does that mean? Here's what Jesus is talking about. Chapter 5, he heals that man, pool Bethesda. He's an invalid. It was a Sabbath. But in that day, when baby Jewish babies were born, they would be circumcised on the eighth day. Old Testament law said two things. One, you better circumcise every baby boy on the eighth day. Two, you better obey the Sabbath. Sometimes the eighth day fell on the Sabbath. And Jesus uh, humbles Moses again by saying, actually, circumcision came from the fathers. The father is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Genesis, actually, it was first given to them, not Moses. So Jesus is still putting Moses down a bit where he belongs to be. And Jesus says, look... If on the eighth day, uh, when the eighth day would come, they would have a dilemma. Do we obey the Sabbath or do we follow through with the circumcision? They always fell through with the circumcision. They always did it anyway. So Jesus is saying, you're criticizing me for suspending the law of the Sabbath to heal a whole man's body who has been in tremendous pain for 38 years. But you're, you're not concerned that you do a procedural small tissue operation anyway. That's a, that's a, that's a lesser thing. I'm, I'm, doing a, I'm, I'm actually healing someone's whole body. Don't you see how you're being hypocritical? Don't you see how you're using the law inconsistently? That's what Jesus is saying to them. Sabbath was created for man. Man was not created for Sabbath. By breaking the Sabbath, Jesus is showing he's above the Sabbath because he's God. Story of the Good Samaritan. If it's the Sabbath day and you see someone in pain, do you say, oh, it's the Sabbath. The law says I shouldn't help anybody. No, you help people still. So Jesus was showing them that their use of the law was misguided. He says, do not judge with appearances, but judge with right judgment. Jesus is reminding the religious leaders that, that the, that's what they're doing. They're judging him with the wrong judgment. Notice, Jesus doesn't say all judging is bad. He doesn't say that at all. Um, he says, judge with the right judgment. Probably the most popular Bible verse right now in all of Scripture is Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, where it says, do not judge or you too will be judged. Probably the most famous Bible verse right now. It used to be John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. You see the guy at the football game with the John 3.16 banner. And 
That was the most popular verse for decades, decades in America. Here in the past five, ten years, it switched to Matthew 7, 1. Don't judge. Don't judge me. Do not judge me, or you too will be judged. As one pastor says, former pastor, many people who say, only God can judge me, live like he won't. Jesus does never forbid all kinds of judgment. That context in Matthew 7, 1 is hypocritical judgmentalism. Like looking at other people's junk they have in their own life and trying to control and fix them without trying to work on your own stuff in your own life. That's, that's the bad stuff. So Jesus never forbids all kinds of judgment. We're actually called to use our discernment and to make biblically informed godly judgments on people and situations. First Corinthians chapter 5, when the Apostle Paul was dealing with sexual immorality in the church, where there was church discipline and excommunication, he says, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? All judging is not bad. Judgmentalism, trying to pounce on somebody else and assume you know their motives and know what they're about before you get to know them, trying to fix their own sins, th that's the kind of bad stuff. But making judgment calls and being discerning and being wise, Jesus doesn't prohibit it. He actually commands, judge with right judgment. There's a lot of cultural events going on right now. It's been just an infamous year in many respects, a bizarre year, really. So many things going on. It's uh, a lot of cultural, cultural things. Social media is not lacking in opinions. In our culture, we, we're amused by these things called hot takes. A hot take is when someone has a quick, raw, emotional response on something that just happened. And you could be right. You might, you, know, you might be the exception to the rule when you do that. But oftentimes, hot takes are usually not the best way to make a judgment call on something. Whenever something happens in culture, oftentimes it's, it's better to wait first. Not be the person who gets out the Facebook and Twitter and Instagram for likes and retweets and so forth right away, right? Just if, if you just kind of wait for a second, pray. Uh, read multiple credible sources from someone who disagrees with you. Often the best social media posts and the best articles are the result of someone taking the time to interact with people who disagree with them first, to read credible sources, to think about their own side, and then make a biblically informed announcement on it. Not the person who has a hot take and says to post something on Facebook the second it happens. That's not extremely, that's not a, a super wise thing to do. Before you post, or before you, as you consider various cultural events, think that, you know, someone might think differently than you or be wired different than you. They might have a different worldview. They may come from a different part of the world. You could be right. And in fact, talking to someone else who disagrees with you will actually strengthen your argument. It's a win-win. It just requires humility and patience to say, I'm, I'm a follower of Christ. That's the most important thing about me. I'm going to learn from this side. I'm going to learn from that side. I'm going to pray. I'm going to know what the Bible says about it. And after I humble myself and consider several sources first, then I can make a biblically discerning judgment call. Otherwise, and you still could be right, but you might say something that's 
overly simplistic or deficient or not considering the other side of the argument. Some of the best judgment calls on things are when someone first takes the time to learn, to consider the other sources, especially the ones in which people disagree. When I talk to an atheist or an agnostic person, I don't feel any sort of insecurity at all. I want to learn. I learn about their side, and I just see how I can easily destruct it. Say, okay, I, I learned about what you think. I love you. You're an image bearer of God. But after looking at the Bible and reading other sources, I still think that Christianity is true. I lost nothing. I only gained. I only grew in what I believe and what I understand. It takes a humility and a patience to say, I'm going I'm to wait this out a bit. I'm not going to make a hot take. I'm going to wait a little bit. That's something that Justine Sacco should have done. She's a gal from New York, 2013. She was 30 years old. She was at the head, the top of her senior marketing company in New York. High, high business platform. And that's when Tudor was sometimes somewhat new. And she was going from London to Africa for, I think, a business trip. And uh, she was tweeting kind of jokes or th things that she thought was funny. And then she tweeted a racist joke. I've got it here. I've decided not to say it just because I don't think it's helpful to say but she tweeted something that was uh, racist in nature. You know, she had 170 followers at the time. I mean, that's nothing for Twitter. Like, any, most of us can get 170 followers pretty easily. I mean, she, so I, I'm, she wasn't famous. Nobody really knew her except for the people in her company and some family and friends. She didn't have a platform at all. She's in the airport. She, she posts something on Twitter that's inappropriate. She gets in the plane. Her life is destroyed on the plane. She has no idea. 11-hour flight, she lands, her best friends are texting her, call me immediately for what she said. She was the number one story in the world. Lost her job, lost her career. She's all over Google. Difficult. She never rebounded again since that. She was someone with a famous magazine, interviewed her. They asked how she's doing. She said, well, I'm not fine yet, Sacco said. I had a great career, and I loved my job. And it was taken away from me. It was the world's top story. You know, in internet, social media age, we like to kind of say what's on our minds right away. The Bible frowns on that. The Bible advocates to be quick to listen, and slow to speak. What ruined Justine's career was a lack of discernment. The inability to make the correct judgment call as to whether or not she should say something. One tweet, probably took her 20 seconds to write. Career's done. So as you consider the times we're living in, things on social media, things that people say at work, if you're a follower of Christ, consider that your first and foremost agenda is to the king and the kingdom. To wait, be patient, consider other sides, and then you'll have the ability to make a better judgment call. Ultimately, Jesus is not just Savior, but He's Lord. He's Lord. And we should look at our judgment calls and what we think and submit them to Him. Because He's the master of our lives. And we should want to honor Him with everything we say and do. Let's pray. Lord, help us 
Help us to be faithful to you. Guard us, Lord. Help us to be more concerned about the kingdom of God and Christ's glory than anything else. Help us to make wise judgment calls. Give us the humility to learn from other people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.